This is Melissa Ford Luckin. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan, Seraph, and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Ford Luckin, editor for the Washington Square Review. I'm here today with Kayla Brandstetter, one of the authors for our most recent issue, and we're here to talk about her piece, 10 Lessons, and whatever else we come up with today. So thank you for joining us today, Kayla. Thank you for inviting me. Sure thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your piece? So 10 Lessons I wrote, I believe, about a year ago, and it was a year out from my transition from working in public high school. I taught grades 9, 12, and then I transitioned into higher education, and it was just kind of like this reflection of all the lessons I had learned as a public school teacher. Some were comedic. I think um, if you've read the piece, there were some comedic areas, and then some were a tad bit more serious and heart-wrenching and all of this led into my decision to leave public education and my transition into higher education and um, just the lack of administrative support, COVID, mental illness. Um, I think there's this misperception that education is family-friendly and it's not and I have two young daughters and I wanted to be more available to my own children and so that was just kind of like the idea behind my essay, 10 Lessons, was just kind of digesting these 10 years that I spent in public education and wanting to remember those funny moments, but at the same time, just these moments that were just unbelievably challenging um, as an educator. One of the things that I really appreciated about the piece was it gives kind of a, you know, a backside view of of teaching, because we know a lot about, you know, what goes on in the classroom as a student, but not a lot of people are teachers, and so they don't get Mm -hmm. that backside view. I'm intrigued by what you just said about um, education and K-12 not being family-friendly. Can you talk a little bit more about that, just so that people that have never had this backside view can get an idea of what that means? Absolutely. I I entered education because of the flexibility that I thought that the field would offer because I wanted to be a mom. So I would start in August, end in May, but in the summer times, yes, I'm not physically going into work, but I'm redoing curriculum, sometimes redoing my classroom, depending on what the administration and what the next I hate using the term trend, but sometimes administrators will attend a conference and they will decide, hey, we're going to scrap this curriculum and now I need you to rewrite. And so over the summer, it's just a lot of like rewriting curriculum. So you have like your set days, you have your personal and your sick days. And I felt like, so your contract time, I was set for like 7.45 in the morning to like 3.30 
but that's actual teaching. That doesn't include the fact that I'm an English teacher and I still need to lesson plan. I still need to grade these papers. So I would go home and spend hours and hours of just grading and getting ready for the next day. And then when I did have children, I would have like anxiety attacks trying to call into work whenever my children were sick or even when I was sick because it was just easier going into work than creating subplans. And so there were days in my last year of teaching that um, I had my daughter's grandmothers take them to the pediatrician and I'm talking to the pediatrician through the phone because there wasn't a sub for that day. And so I couldn't be available to my own children uh, when they were sick. I will be completely honest, and I don't think a lot of educators would admit this. I became resentful for to the phrase, well, you need to do it for the students. And I would try to go above and beyond for my students. Every fall semester when we ended the semester, I would do like Polar Express hot chocolate for my students. We would do fun food days. I would try to do fun activities. And it was like I was giving so much to my students that there wasn't a lot left for my own children. And I just felt like it's not family friendly in that regard. It's not family friendly when you are a young teacher trying to have children. The maternity leave um, is not conducive to young teachers. I don't know how it is in Michigan. Um, I had the days when I had my first daughter. So I wasn't, in my opinion, I felt like penalized for having a child. But my second daughter, I had her in August. I went 10 days above my sick days because I didn't have the days and I owed the district money. So for like a month, they were taking anywhere from like two to $400 out of my check per month to pay them back for going over my days. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so this is a lot when I think about the experiences that you wrote in the 10 lessons, what you went through with the students. So what mm -hmm. you're talking about is your own emotional hard times, exhaustion, frustration, and then you, what you saw students going through at the same time. And then I start to think about, so you're in teaching now at college level. Mm -hmm. What carried over and what didn't carry over? Because I know that in all school systems, students have a lot of struggles, the ones that, very ones that you described, and College students also have struggles. So how does that show mm -hmm. up in the classroom? And, and how is it different for you? Some of these traumas and issues that students face have carried over. I work at a community college, and I know you work for a community college. So I feel like when you work at a community college, like some of the type of students we engage with can be completely different than a university student. So I work in a rural area. I have a high percentage of um, students that are first generation students. So learning that, like what college life is, getting them ready. Many of them, they're, they are the first student to go to college out of their family. And there definitely needs to have that guidance between like helping our students work through and navigate, okay, you may need to sacrifice time with your family to study for your final and read your paper or to write your paper. And sometimes families don't always understand that sacrifice. So just being supportive, helping build that support system for these students that are first generation is 
I don't want to say new, but that has been a transition. Students who, because um, I mentioned this in my essay, who have been sexually assaulted, domestic violence, extreme poverty, that really hasn't changed. I will say what has changed from that transition of dealing with students with these traumatic backgrounds, I feel like I have more support in the higher education level than I ever did in the public school system. Um, I was a mandated reporter in 912, and so the family division services or CPS in certain states, the Child Protective Services, um, it's just frustrating because as a mandated reporter, you must report um, suspected abuse and negligence. Uh, whether there's any proof of it or not, you still need to report it. And every time that I would do a DFS report, it would always come back inconclusive. And that's frustrating. Um, and sometimes when I would report cases, we're dealing with like sexual assault cases, attempted suicide, and it would always come back inconclusive. So I just felt like my hands were tied in a broken system with finite resources that when I encounter those same issues in the higher ed, um, I've had students with attempted suicide or mental health crisis. This past semester, I've had domestic violence. I just feel like I have more resources. We have a pantry. We have access to mental health counselors. We have access to um, shelters to get our students suffering from domestic violence out of that situation. The student that I had this past spring, her advisor is just phenomenal. She was in a domestic violence situation, and the advisor found a $1,500 grant to where she could find financially leave. And that just, just makes me happy that I can visually see something being done when students are un, you know, going through these traumas. And that's something that I didn't necessarily get to witness in the 912. And, and that breaks your heart because you're like, these people, these students need help, and there's no help. That, yeah, I, that's completely understandable that when you know there's a need there, that as a nurturing person that cares about people, you, you want to get them connected with something that can help them move forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's very emotionally draining for you as an educator, but I can hear what you're saying about having the resources there and being able to use them. There's also another a complication where you don't always know what's going on with the students. So when you have the resources, you can just let all the students know that they're there and then they can access mm -hmm. them even just on their own. Yes, and even at the higher ed level, we have what's called Crowder Cares. And even if a student feels like they are in their own mental health crisis, that they, they know they need help, they can report themselves. And it's anonymous, they can take care of their mental health and within their own privacy, we're not notifying a principal, we're not notifying a counselor, we're not notifying parents. They can take care of that in the privacy of their own time. And um, and that's something that I, I didn't have that option when I was working in 912, that if a student was undergoing some form of a mental health crisis, it's DFS, it's the counselors, you're contacting the parents. It's like just a whole team of people are involved. Sometimes it works out and sometimes that support is only there for a day and then the student is on their own after that. Well, thanks for sharing all that. That really can be helpful to people that, like I said, don't have that backside view of what it's like to be a teacher in the K-12 or in, in the college setting. It's a lot to think about. 
I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, you let me know that you've done a TED Talk recently, which sounds really yeah. exciting. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And I kind of get the sense that some of the experiences that you had while teaching kind of blended into the TED Talk. So just tell us what that was like and how that came about. Yes, um, I'm in the process of writing a book. My book is near completion. And my book, I interviewed 26 women from across the country about their reproductive decisions. And I know that sounds controversial, um, but we are expanding more than the Roe v. Wade conversation. It's teen pregnancy, it's miscarriages, it's women who are choosing not to be mothers and the stigma behind that decision. Women who chose to adopt, women who froze their eggs, IVF, surrogacy, just I did a comprehensive examination of women in general. Because I know with my own experience with miscarriages, with maternity leave, we need to have a deeper conversation when it comes to women in this country. Um, I didn't realize how frequent a miscarriage was until I had a miscarriage and was open about it. I didn't understand the complications with maternity leave or parental leave in general until I went on maternity leave and just the injustice behind some of those issues. And coupled with my mom had me at 16 and part of my TED talk, I mentioned sexual assault and the statement that I made of don't say it's not your fault that you got sexually assaulted, but it kind of is because you put yourself in that position. That came from um, a former student who I reported her sexual assault and that was a statement that was said to her. And just like, we need to support our victims and not victim shame because no means no, regardless of what you think the situation was. So all of these experiences, yes, led to my decision to, to write my book about, about women in hopes to open this dialogue of having a comprehensive discussion about women and the choices that they have or don't have. And so I'm almost finished. I need to build my platform to get an agent and to help get it published. And a local TED talk came and I waited till the last two hours of the deadline because I thought there's no way they're going to select me for a TED talk. And on my website, I have my blog post. I looked at my previous writings, I looked at my prologue to my book and I thought, oh, I may have something. The theme was connectedness. So I haphazardly wrote a rough outline. They needed an audition video. So I read two, three minutes from the idea I had, and then I submitted it. And I think I had two hours to spare. <laughs> I waited to the absolute last minute because I thought there is no way, no way that they're going to select me. And about a week later, I received an email that they liked my idea. And so I gave the TED Talk at Missouri Southern State University on May 4th. And I practiced nonstop for, I don't know, like six straight weeks. Um, I think the advantage of working in higher education is you can also pull your students. So as like some of my students were writing their eight to 10 page research paper for me, I like pull them out of the library. I'm like, hey, can you listen to my talk? And <laughs> they did. And they, I was so appreciative. And I had a nice um, like little fan club on the day of many people from my college. My students came and saw me talk. And being connected with other professionals from 
literally across the country who were also speaking was just, I want to remember that experience because we waited in like what's called a green room. We weren't allowed to interact with the audience, but we were able to just converse amongst each other. And everybody was passionate about education. Everybody was passionate about mental health awareness, women's issues. And it was just, I can't describe just how rewarding it was to be among these professionals who share the same vision that I do. And we were passionate about advocating for change. And yes, just like my own personal experience and my experience as an educator influenced my TED Talk, which is Don't Be an Athena. And I tied in the Medusa legend into just advocating empathy and change for people. Talk a little bit more about that that mythology that you used as a metaphor for how to have these conversations and how not to have the conversations. Yeah, I used, um, I didn't know much about the story of Medusa. I think growing up, I had some interest in mythology. All I knew about Medusa was she was a monster or gorgon who turned men into stone. She had snakes for hair, and that's about the gist of it. Last summer, I chose to write a blog post, and I titled it Don't Be an Athena, and I was just researching, I think, ancient mythology and folklore to like bridge that gap between ancient times and today about how little has changed. And when I looked into Medusa's story a little more, I did not realize that, one, she has multiple origins of how she became Medusa. But the two that I chose for my speech and my blog, the first one, she vowed to remain a celibate priestess to the goddess Athena. And she was described as beautiful, and she fell in love with Poseidon. And their relationship caused jealousy with Athena, which transformed her into the Gorgon and the monster that we recognize her today. And then the second story came from, I think there's a few centuries between the two origin stories, but it was the Roman take. The Roman poet Ovid, in his book Metamorphosis, 100% blames Athena because Poseidon violates or sexually assaults Medusa in Athena's holy temple. And since Athena can't really do anything to Poseidon because he is her equal. She takes out that rage onto Medusa. And then Medusa becomes this monster who, because she didn't receive the support, she creates more victims. And so I just use that as a story about our words and actions carry a lot of weight. And when someone endures a traumatic experience, whether it's rape, depression, anxiety, anything that's causing significant amount of trauma, we have the opportunity to either create a Medusa to where this individual is going to continue living into their trauma, creating more victims, or we have an opportunity to kind of empower that individual into being a survivor and they can go on with their life. And that's how I used it because that's still true today. I have seen the generational curse of abuse from families to families. And if they don't break that abuse cycle, that generational poverty and domestic violence, well, then that young five, six, seven-year-old child is going to turn into an adult that's going to create more victims later on because that cycle is not being broken. That ties in so well with what we were talking about earlier with having resources available for people that need them. And then you're oh, all 100%. Yep. And you're also adding another layer on top of it 
which is being brave enough to have the conversation. And when people are brave enough to have the conversation, listening is important. And uh, that's one of the things I liked about your TED Talk was that you're giving people suggestions about how they can be a listener and how they can support rather than basically shut the person off and cut them away from the conversation and cut them away from resources. And I think that's what you're saying, what happened to Medusa. Yeah, 100%. And I think sometimes when an individual is, when they suffer something traumatic, like when I had my miscarriage, I'm the only woman in my family that I'm aware of as far as like my grandmothers and my mother to have a miscarriage and suffer infertility. People didn't know how to approach me. And in all fairness, when I had my miscarriage, I took a week off and I came back to work. And when I returned to work, it's like I, I pushed it out. I just returned to work and I had a male coworker approach me like a year or two after. And he goes, we didn't know how to approach you because you acted like nothing happened. And I said, because working was my escape. And I think when something like a miscarriage happens, sometimes we don't know how to react to that woman. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't need to do anything outside of just have that shoulder and let her cry. That's all you need her to do. You had a student that wrote you a letter, right? About yeah, the miscarriage. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he wrote me a letter and um, at the end of the school year, and it was one of those students, I don't want to say he was challenging, but when I returned back from my leave after having my miscarriage, he approached me and he's like, where were you, vacation? And that sounds horrible, but I needed that. I needed that normalcy. And so that student ended up calling me mom for the rest of the high school experience. And then he, he waited to the last, the last day of school to hand me this letter that basically was, I didn't realize as teachers, we think we're just teaching them the content and that I was teaching them writing and reading, but I didn't realize how much of my personal life also was teaching them and I lost my baby I came back to work and I still have his letter even though it's happened several years ago I think like seven years ago I still have his letter and he said that I taught him you know to kind of push forward when bad things happen I think that's true what you said about teaching more than just the content and I'm an English teacher, and you're an English teacher, so maybe mm-hmm. we both just think that being English teachers is, makes that more persistent and more prevalent when you're talking with students, because you're reading a lot of their personal writing, so you get, you get glimpses into their life, and it's just natural to want to offer glimpses into your life at, at some time so that it feels a little more balanced. Yeah, and I feel that way to connect with my students. I try to be transparent sometimes with what I have experienced. So if I do have a student that is 18 years old and has a toddler, I will tell them, hey, I'm a parent too. I have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old. Yes, my kid didn't sleep at all. I try to be as flexible as I can be, but still hold that high standard of, okay, I want quality writing, but remain in communication with me. I understand when your kid wakes up at two o'clock in the morning throwing up, just shoot me an email and we will work out the logistics later. It's keeping that conversation going very much. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What other nonfiction projects do you have going in addition to the, the book? I've taken the essay 10 lessons and I'm considering like my second book to be 
kind of like my memories of being a teacher. I want to take 10 lessons and I want to expand on it. And so my first essay I wrote were, was called Hills, Coffee, and Pens. And it was about like my first year of teaching and all of the mistakes I made and like second guessing myself. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to get me fired. <laughs> and um, I'm trying to write it using a little bit of humor, kind of a David Sedaris style. And I recently finished my second essay for that book, and it's called Grammar, Sex, and Literature. And I think I mentioned it in this with 10 Lessons, where I, my second year of teaching, a condom was found in a grammar book. And I tried to be discreet about it, but it, that did not happen. <laughs> I had a student like find, I had a student find a condom in a grammar book and I tried to discreetly remove the book from her desk before either one of us could be too embarrassed when another student in front of her turned around and like just announced to the class like is this a condom and so <laughs> I basically was like okay I'm gonna have to find a way to transition and I basically said I'm like tell your health teachers that I covered sex ed today and let's move on and we did and so I'm just kind of talking about all of these issues in the classroom that the classroom management in your college classes will not prepare you for, uh, such as finding contraceptives in your classroom. <laughs> but I made that into a deeper conversation on how like that district, we really don't talk about sex education like at all. Like we don't have that class at all. And then I led that essay into like how comical it was to find a condom in my classroom. And then I led it into a deeper conversation about teen pregnancy, sexual assault, and um, just like issues facing a lot of rural teenage girls that they don't have a lot of support because we're not talking about how to protect them. So that's how kind of my what that's what I'm working on right now is just doing a humorous collection of my memories as a teacher, expanding on 10 lessons. But even though they're humorous, I want to expand on um, deeper issues facing our school systems. I think that sounds great. I taught high school before I taught college. And I think that there's a lot to be gained by teaching in a different setting before moving to the college setting. Like nothing will surprise you. College. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing will surprise you. And you've already, no. been, you've already been embarrassed. Terrible things have already happened. And, you oh, know. I had a student last semester this past spring that told me the reason why he didn't get an assignment turned in was because he was too hungover over the weekend. And I was like, you do you, just please get your paper turned in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> are you working on any other projects, like a fiction project or blog posts? What are the kind of hey. things? I have a couple of blog post ideas, but I, my main objective for this summer is just to get my book completed. Um, I'm optimistic. I think I have a, an independent publisher in Iowa interested in my manuscript once it's finished. So that's been my main priority is just trying to build my brand, expand my network, and, and get my book published. Because I'm passionate about my book, obviously. I wouldn't be writing about all these different decisions that women can or can make or had, didn't have the opportunity to make. And um, I'm excited because I, I do want to advocate for all women. I wanted every single woman to see themselves in my book. I interviewed women from rural areas, urban areas, suburban areas, women quite educated, women in poverty, Black Americans, Hispanic, LGBTQ, 
Asian, uh, Native American. I, I mean, I really branched out and um, I'm on year two because of all the research and the interviewing that I've had to do. So I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm getting excited about that. So um, that's wonderful. It's a beautiful project. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited. I'm ready for it to be and I'm ready to see the book form. And I'm still a little ways from that, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I have six more chapters. All right. Wonderful. Hope that you get to make good use of your summertime. If people want to follow you and stay in touch, where can they find you online? You can find me on my website, calebrandstetter.com. I do have a subscription uh, link. Just put in your email and it will subscribe. Um, I haven't been as frequent with my blog posts. I taught 21 credit hours last spring, plus <laughs> I have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old and writing a book. So um, I'm planning on dropping a blog post probably in the next couple weeks. And I have my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And that TED Talk. Uh, you can which find I'll... me on YouTube on TED Talk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll be sure to include all of those in the show notes so that people can find you easily. Thanks a lot for spending time with us today. We look forward to reading your book. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing.